Hello there. Welcome to this episode of Bridging the Gaps. I'm your host, Dr. Vaseem Akhtar. Today I'm joined by experimental neurobiologist William Harris, Professor Emeritus of Anatomy at the University of Cambridge. In this episode of Bridging the Gaps, we are going to discuss his new book, Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built. Bill, thank you very much for joining me and welcome to Bridging the Gaps. Thank you, Asim. It's a pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about all this stuff. Bill, you suggest in the book that uh, to understand how the human brain is built, it is not only that we need to understand growth of a fetal brain uh, over the nine-month pregnancy period, we should also try to understand how billions of years ago, multicellular animals first emerged from single-cell organisms. Yes, that's true. I I do suggest that. And uh, the reason is because brains evolved humans weren't the the first animals that had brains way back when animals first evolved um, very near the beginning some animals started to have little brains and they built up over time and and scientists have found out especially in the field of evo devo evolution and development that the the, the, the steps, the evolutionary steps, parallel in many ways the developmental steps. So if we understand the simplest brains and how they got slightly more complex, we start to learn something about how uh, a brain developed from a s- simple system to a slightly more complex one. When we had these single-cell organisms... Everything was happening within that one cell. Everything, all the procedures and processes that were required to keep that organism alive and safe, uh, that was happening in, in one cell. But as multicellular animal emerged, there were roles and responsibilities for uh, that were assigned to various cells and various organisms uh, within that animal. Perhaps it is very important to understand that connection, that how brain evolves. Yes, I, I agree. The early, very early pro- protists, single-cell animals, were able to respond to their environment. They had sensory apparatus, therefore. They had structures maybe that could perceive light or perceive chemical. Maybe they were molecules that were on the membrane of these cells that sensed a chemical in the surrounding or a photon of light or a stretch if it had been touched. Um, There were also as a digestive system in a single-celled organism, something, um, a mouth-like structure that would take in things and there were excretory events. So a kind of digestive system, a motility system, and ways for integrating information. Am I near a source of food, or do I have to search for a source of food? Am I hungry? Am I not? Um, so these these were all in one organism. But as soon as many cells got together with all these capacities, it it seems that organ organ uh, evolution started to use that the extra capacity of having 
all the cells being equal to, let's say, okay, some of you do digestion, some of you do sensory stuff, some of you do motor stuff, some of you do um, um, integration. So while, while there were specialized compartments in single cells, in multicellular animals, there were organs or the primordia of organs started to form uh, like the nervous system and the integument and the muscle system, the digestive system. And then brain as an independent system within a multicellular uh, organism uh, emerged as, 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 as a, a structure that does something special information processing. Yes, exactly. So some of the cells said, okay, we'll be the, we'll be the brain, we'll be the nervous system of this animal. And they used the genetic machinery that had evolved from the, from the time of single-celled animals, and they kept those genes on because they were good for processing information. Whereas mm-hmm. the, 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 the stomach of a multicellular animal might not need uh, that kind of electrical activity to communicate quickly with other parts. So they don't turn on those genes and they turn on the genes that were involved in digestion of food. A single fertilized egg generates an embryo. Mm -hmm. And in this embryo, different groups of cells lead uh, to the development of various parts uh, of a brand new human being, uh, including a brand new human brain. So, it all begins with a single fertilized egg and then in the embryo, some embryonic cells become uh, neural stem cells that undertake the task of uh, making the brain. So when do first neural stem cells emerge in an embryo and what causes them to emerge? Yes, you've, you've uh, summarized it very well. The, uh, when, when, a, when an embryo is one cell, just after fertilization, um, there is no brain yet. Um, There is a cell that has the potential to make all the different organs of the body. This one cell becomes two cells, and those two cells still have all that potential. And then it becomes four and eight and 16. Pretty soon there's thousands of cells. And at some point, and in uh, invertebrate animals, it's around the time of gastrulation, Um, some of those cells become specified to become neural stem cells, the cells that will make the brain. And when a developmental biologist says the word specified, it usually means that those cells turn on certain genes that mark them to become a particular type of cell. So before that time, they weren't expressing this neural specific gene, and then they were. So that happens at a particular time, and that time is, uh, it's it's at a moment in development in the vertebrate embryo called gastrulation. Um, And that is when a group of cells gets a signal, and that signal says, don't become something else, become the nervous system. It's, there's no brain yet still, but these cells are now specified 
and they have um, a destiny. Uh, we say they're determined in a way. They they have they could have made something else before, but now they 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 become committed to make neural tissue, the nervous system. At the same time, when neural stem cells emerge in the brain, I believe stem cells for other organs also emerge. Uh, how much do we understand that how when a cell divides and creates a new cell, and this new cell now has a pre-assigned new and a different role? Yes, uh, that was a, was a huge problem. Um, the, the big breakthrough was made... Um, by Hans Spemann and his graduate student, Hilda Mangold, back in the 1920s. And they found out that there was one group of cells talking to another group of cells. So the, the group of cells that was doing the talking were cells that during the process of gastrulation moved inside this hollow ball of cells and sent a signal to the neighboring cells. Um, they didn't know what the signal was, but it took molecular biologists um, decades, 70 years before they discovered the first of these signals that says, okay, it says basically you who are close to me in this area, you become the nervous system. There were other signals that were going on. Say, you that are close to me in this area become muscles. You that are close to me in that area become this. So this group of cells that were sending all these signals, um, Spayman called the organizer. But uh, the many uh, molecules that the organizer releases to organize the tissue around it, they, they, they're still being discovered. Some of them have been, but uh, so some of the important ones have been, like the ones that induce cells to become neural, have were discovered. The first one in in Richard Harlan's lab in the 1980s. In the book, throughout the book, but particularly at this point in the book, you discuss various experiments leading to fascinating discoveries and findings about how a baby's brain uh, is built. Talk us through some of these experiments and the questions that led to these experiments and how these experiments were conducted because there are huge ethical issues here. You cannot conduct research on uh, human embryos. So uh, uh, how do we study that what happens within an embryo uh, and how cell divide and uh, how, how, how uh, different uh, uh, stem cells uh, emerge? Yes, that's a very important issue to, to discuss. Of course, we don't manipulate and do experiments on human embryos. But because of the, what we talked about earlier about the evolutionary aspects of brain development, we have a strong suspicion that the brains of all vertebrates start out in roughly similar ways and use very similar mechanisms to initiate brain development. So we can use, and, and this is what the, the scientists back in the late um, 
1800s and early 1900s did, they started to use experimental animals like frogs and they would study brain development in frog embryos or salamander embryos. And now, um, slightly more recently in the 19, early 1900s, they started using flies. And at first we didn't think flies brains and vertebrate brains started out the same way, but now we think they are much more similar than we originally imagined in terms of the molecular signals that are used to tell a cell to become part of the nervous system. And so we discover these things usually in a model organism like a, a salamander or a fish or a fly or a worm, and then we uh, can check to see if something similar is happening in humans. And usually we can take advantage of uh, an unfortunate circumstance like an abortion. Um, uh, you know, so there are collections of embryos, human embryos, at various different stages. And we can see the genes that are turned on. Are they the same genes that are turned on in the same parts of the animal as in a salamander? Or are they different? And largely we find that at these early stages, it's a very similar kind of process. So that allows us to make progress in experimental animals and then study them in humans. More recently, because we've made this progress in um, understanding things through the study of experimental animals and the progress that's been made in growing embryonic stem cells from humans, we can push embryonic stem cells that are grown in culture dishes to neural fates. And those neural stem cells that we grow in culture will try to make little brains and uh, human little bits of human brain. And we can see, are those processes the same as we've discovered in uh, frogs and salamanders? Or are they different? And in what ways are they different? Going back to the formation of uh, brain uh, in an embryo, so the formation of the neural plate and then its progress to the neural tube, you discuss in the book, these are the first glimpses of the development of uh, uh, brain in an embryo? Yes. When this group of cells first makes the decision to commit to be the founders of the brain, the atoms and eaves of the brain, we could call them, um, they are packed together and they're on the surface of the embryo and they're, they're tightly packed together in a, in a kind of a circular form. I, I compare it to, you know, an area on the rind of an orange uh, so if you draw a circle on the rind of an orange and inside that circle, there are the neural stem cells. And that's a flat structure. So we call it a plate or a rounded structure. But the, the edges of that circle rise at their edges and they join together at the top to make a, a hollow uh, kind of tube. 
and that's the neural tube. It's still these neural stem cells. There's no real um, functioning brain yet because all the cells are still dividing. They're not neurons yet. They're not communicating yet. Their job is to, to make more cells of the same type. So it starts to have a structure once it closes and has a tube, like our spinal cord, you know, is, is, has got a, a hollow in the center through which cerebral spinal fluid flows and cells around the outside. And our brain is the same way with ventricles on the inside. So this structure, the, 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 the plan of the brain is kind of built at this stage, but it isn't yet a functioning brain because the cells are still not neurons. They're still dividing cells. And these uh, neural stem cells ensure uh, that they produce a brain of right size and proportion for a human being? Yes. And if they're neural stem cells in a chimpanzee, they make a brain of the right size and proportions for a chimpanzee. Or if they're neural stem cells in a fish, which is what I studied for the last part of my career, they make a brain of the right size and proportions for a fish. And this... Uh, uh Uh, neural plate and then its progression to uh, this neural tube in the embryo. When does this happen in humans? It's at about four weeks of gestation, mm-hmm. which is when a human embryo is about the size of a sesame seed, maybe slightly bigger than a sesame seed, but a, approximately a sesame seed size. So at that stage, you can already see that there's a forebrain, a midbrain, a hindbrain, primordium of cerebellum, beginning of eyes, spinal cord, and lots of structures. And they look, it looks very similar in a, in a frog embryo and a human embryo at this stage. Bill, talk to us about uh, the life cycle of these neural uh, stem cells. Uh, they keep dividing and creating new stem cells at what point they start producing actual neurons? A very good question. And that is something that uh, people have a little bit of trouble with usually. But you can think of it this way, that there's a neural stem cell. It's not a neuron. It's a dividing cell. And early on in its career, it divides and it makes two cells And those are both neural stem cells. So that first neural stem cell is gone, but now there are two neural stem cells that are copies of the mother. And we use the term, we keep the, uh, the we call um, cells that divide mother cells rather than father cells. So early on, one cell make, one neural stem cell makes two neural stem cells, two make four, four make eight, and the growth is exponential. And that happens throughout pretty much the first trimester of pregnancy in a human. So pretty soon there are millions and millions and millions of cells. But as you say, growth can't go on forever this way. And at some point, you have to start making the cells that will be the The, the cells of your mature functioning brain. 
And when a stem cell in the middle of gestation divides in the following way, where it makes one copy of itself, another neural stem cell, and its other daughter, when it divides into two cells, becomes a neuron, um, that's when the first, we say the first neuron is born. And that cell may go on, to, that, that, that single stem cell that's the result of that division may go on again to produce another neuron and another stem cell. And so over time, the growth becomes not exponential, but linear, one neuron at a time from each lineage. And finally, at the end of the life of the embryo, the last neural stem cell divides in the following way. It makes two neurons and does not make a copy of itself. And so there are no more neural stem cells left only neurons. This is a, a very important point. We might come back to this later in the conversation. But at this point, let us try to understand what is a neuron. Uh, Bill, what is the neuron theory or the neuron doctrine? That's a good question. The neuron doctrine is simply the idea that the brain is composed of about 100 million individual cells, each surrounded by their own membrane. And this was uh, put forward by the Spanish uh, neurohistologist and what we call the whom we call the father of modern neurobiology, Santiago Ramoni Cajal. Before Cajal's time, it was suspected that electricity, which was known through the work of Galvani, was important in the way, neuro, the way the brain worked and the way signals traveled through the nervous system. But it was thought that for electricity to travel along the different parts of the nervous system, cells had to be fused together and share a single membrane. But Sherrington, an English physiologist of the late um, 1800s and early 1900s demonstrated that that didn't really make sense because sometimes you reverse a signal. So you get an excitation and that leads to an inhibition of something else. So you relax, a stimulus may excite some muscles and relax other muscles. And that's because some neurons are excited and other neurons are inhibited. And that's hard to um, mesh with an idea that electricity just flows. It, it gives a certain logic, you know. You can have a plus-minus logic like uh, chips or something like that. And so that seemed to be the way things work. And the way that neurons would talk to each other would be through these hypothetical structures that... Sherrington called synapses, where one neuron makes contact with another neuron, doesn't join it physically, but sends a message. And now we know these messages are uh, neurotransmitters, very small molecules that are released from the end of one neuron and play on the processes of another neuron, either to excite it or inhibit it, that kind of thing. 
A very interesting point uh, that you discuss in the book is that soon after their birth, these neurons start acquiring unique physiological characteristics that uh, mark them as specific type of neurons uh, that do particular information processing tasks in the brain. Let us talk through this unique characteristics uh, and these uh, unique identities of neurons. How do they acquire these characteristics and uh, identities? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's a very active area of continuing, uh, continuing research. When I was um, a graduate student, I was studying the, um, the retina of uh, the fruit fly, Drosophila. And it, the fruit fly has color vision. So it has some photoreceptor cells that see blue light and others that see ultraviolet light, some that see green light. Um, and there are different cells. So there's the UV-sensitive cell and the blue-sensitive cell. And the UV-sensitive cell uh, has a set of special genes that get turned on so that it becomes UV-sensitive. And it finally expresses uh, an opsin protein, the, the protein in the membrane that evolved from these single-cell animals eons ago. But this opsin protein sees UV light. An, a neighboring cell, which is a slightly different cell, sees blue light. Now, a lot of people were interested because I found a mutation where the, the ultraviolet cells didn't form. And Jerry Rubin's lab and um, other labs started to investigate this, and they found there was, there was a whole pathway. It took many labs and many years of work to understand how this one cell in the Drosophila retina was got its particular uh, uh, physiological property, which is to see in the ultraviolet. And when you think in that we don't even know how many cells there are in the human brain, we know we have three types of cone cells, red, green, and blue, and rod cells. But in the retina, there are at least 100 different types of neurons. And we don't know a whole lot about how they all get their individual fates. But as you say, they all do particular jobs. Some receive the light, some process it in a particular way. Some send that message on to the next cell that does the next job of processing the information that sends it on to the next cell with its process information. And those cells do jobs computing as well. So it, all these different types of neurons are, have different computational jobs. It's like a great government, you know, where everybody's sitting in an office, getting the data in, processing it, and sending it on to the next people. But there's no head of this government. There's no single person at, at the head. They're all kind of pitching in together, processing it together. That is fascinating. So you are saying to me that this is an active research area. We actually fully don't understand that how various uh, neurons get their responsibilities. That is correct. 
For example, we know a bit, quite a lot about motor neurons in the spinal cord. And we know a bit about certain neurons in the retina and a few other cell types like um, sensory cells that are in other parts of the brain. But most of the neurons in the brain, we don't really understand how they get their particular identities. And there's a question because they get their identities before they look like what they're going to turn into. So, for example, when you're a kid, you might know you're going to be a lawyer, but you don't know what that is yet. But your father's told you you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to get sent to law school, and you're going to become a lawyer. Um, But you don't know what that is yet. So same with these neurons. They start out, they're little, they haven't developed their mature uh, physiology, their mature anatomy. Um, And... So not only do we not know how they get their identities, we understand broad strokes about this, which I can talk about, but we don't know how that plays out so that they develop particular morphologies and physiologies. And what I mean by generally is that um, some parts of a, a neuron's identity are inherited from the mother cell. So we already talked at the beginning of how we have neural stem cells. All those cells know that they're going to become, give rise to the nervous system. Maybe they don't know which cell type yet, but they have that part of their identity specified. The next part of their identity may be specified when the neural tube rolls up and you get a forebrain. So now they know I'm neural, I'm forebrain. And then they know something else. I'm neural, I'm forebrain, I'm retina. And then they know something else. And that's partly because of their who their parents were, who the mother neural stem cell was from them. But it's also partly due to the environment they're exposed to. And it's also partly due to chance because lineages don't play out in the same way every time. Sometimes they do one thing, sometimes they do another. It's a bit like rolling a dice sometimes, you know. You may have six fates to choose from, and uh, we'll roll the dice to see which one you are. And if you roll the dice enough times, you get enough ones, twos, threes, fours, fives, and sixes, so there's everything gets made, but uh, you can't predict. So it's, it's, it's this combination of genes, environment, and chance. Once a neuron is born, uh, does it start forming connections with other neurons immediately after its birth? Soon after its birth. So some neurons, when they're born, when they're born, they're, they're, they're not yet ready. They still look like a neural stem cell. But they're not going to re-enter the cell cycle. They're not going to divide again. So they have to turn into this neuron and they grow processes. One process is called the axon. That's the wire, the long wire that the neuron sends out that carries information to who it's going to connect with. And there are other processes that the neuron grows out 
which receive information like the various antennae that this neuron has. It gets information maybe from a hundred other neurons or maybe a thousand other neurons. And in some cases, just a couple other neurons. But um, it, it grows these intricate processes to take informa in information and it sends out a long wire that branches at the end to make multiple connections with hundreds of other neurons. And besides that, it also has to understand whether it's going to be an excitatory neuron or an inhibitory neuron and who it's going to connect with exactly. And that leads to my next question that how does an individual neuron know that what other neurons it should connect to? Is this information somewhere in DNA pre-programmed or uh, something happens uh, dynamically and, and, the, and the neuron keeps uh, engaging with other neurons that it should keep engaging with? Good question. The, the, the way that people tend to think of it now is that when a neuron is born, that is, it leaves the cell cycle, never to re-enter again, it knows pretty much who it is. It's a specific type of neuron. It doesn't have the shape yet. It doesn't have the connections yet. But it knows, if you could say a cell knows, it, it knows who it's going to connect with. It sends its long axon to another particular place. And in that place, it searches for the partners that it should connect with. Now, it may be it connects with a certain, so you could say neuron type 6AB5 is, uh, is communicating, wants to communicate with majorly with neuron type 6B72. Um, so it kind of knows that. I'm looking for B72 out here in this part of the brain. And some of the cells in that part of the brain are B7 too. And so it finds those ones and starts making connections with them. It's not as precise as it eventually will be, but it starts making connections with a. It's got a very high de degree of specificity at this point. If you think there are um, uh, 100 billion connections, 100 billion neurons in the brain, and that each neuron is making connections with about 100 other neurons, approximately, on average. That's a, a factor of one in a billion already. And then it gets more refined, as, as, as we'll talk about later. I find this concept that you discuss in the book of intermediate targets very interesting. And you discuss uh, fascinating research that informs us that how the mechanism of intermediate targets uh, work and eventually a neuron will get connected to a specific neuron at distance. Uh, talk to us about this concept. Yes. So many neurons in the brain, not all neurons in the brain, send very long axons. For example, the retinal ganglion cells in your eye travel along the optic nerve, which is a long nerve, and into visual centers in your brain. There are neurons in your 
motor cortex up at the top of your head that send long axons down to connect to specific motor neurons in your spinal cord. And they have to find the right places, the right ones, and the right places to do this. And it's a long journey. Um, and the journey is sometimes broken up into pieces. Like you or I might travel from A to B across the country, and we might stop at one place because that's the best place to stop and re, you know, fuel. And so neurons, they kind of get attracted to one place and then they get attracted to the next place and then they get attracted to the next place. These places that they get attracted to en route, we call intermediate targets. And they're usually attractive targets, but as soon as they get there, these attractive targets become less attractive and the neuron moves on. It's like if you go to a McDonald's on your cross-country trip, you're not going to stay at the McDonald's because you'll get sick of the coffee and the hamburgers there and you'll want to make the next part. You know, it was great to get there, but you got to leave and, and go on the next <laughs> yeah. thing. So that's kind of how I think about the intermediate targets. Once a neuron reaches and connects uh, with the right target, uh, how do two neurons confirm that they are made for each other? As you put in the book, that they seal this connection. With a synaptic kiss. <laughs> Absolutely, yes. yes. <laughs> so if neuron of this particular type and a, a neuron that it wants to make a connection with are well-matched, they're usually well-matched because they're expressing when I say the word expressing, would people know what I mean? The, 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 the genes are making particular proteins that go onto the surface of the cell that says, I am this neuron type. And the other neuron that's connecting with it says, I am this neuron type. And those neuron types are matched. So, and they're matched by matching chemicals like... Um, some, some molecules like to adhere to each other. So if neuron A is connecting to neuron B and neuron A is expressing molecule one, two, three, four, five on its surface and neuron B is expressing molecule one, two, three, four, five on its surface and one, two, three, four, five likes to stick to one, two, three, four, five, then they, stick, they start sticking to each other. Neuron, one, two, neuron that's expressing 1, 2, 3, 4, 5 might not want to stick so well to one the neuron that's expressing 1, 2, 4, 5, 7. So using this kind of a combinatorial or, or barcode, you could say, on the, on the surface of the cells, neurons could recognize that they're made for each other and stick to each other because these proteins help the neurons stick to each other. And this takes me to the next question. When a neuron is unable to make right connections, uh, you say in the book that the neuron commits suicide. It dies. Talk to us about this process. So this was an amazing discovery that was made mostly by Victor Hamburger and Rita Levy-Montalcini, who worked together in the... Um, in, in 
in Chicago and then at the University of Washington in the, in the, um, in the mid-1900s. And what, what they discovered was that for motor neurons, usually a chick embryo makes about twice as many motor neurons during its development as it has as an adult. And they found this out because if you remove the limb bud of a chick embryo, when it's only about two days in the egg, um, and then you let that embryo develop for a while and you look, you see that the motor neurons on the side that has the missing leg aren't there anymore. Originally it was thought maybe they didn't develop, but then they found out that no, they developed. In fact, twice as many developed as would normally survive, but without a limb there, none of them survived. So it became clear from that that too many motor neurons were normally made. And then it was found the same thing was true in mice and rats and humans and all, all vertebrates basically. And then you start looking at other types of neurons, not motor neurons, but it's a general principle in the brain that you make about twice as much, tw twice as many neurons as you need and only half of them survive. And the ones that survive are the ones that make good connections. And the ones that don't survive are the ones that don't make good connections. So if you make a good connection, you get a supportive feedback. You've made a great connection with me. Here's some, here's some feedback. And, it, and this feedback is a survival factor. And the cell says, oh, good, I made a connection. I can survive. But if you don't get that feedback that says you've made a good connection, the cell uh, doesn't survive. And it activates a program that uh, ends up destroying itself called apoptosis. It's an active process. Like, I didn't get the factor. I have to kill myself. And, yeah, and it, you know, I liken it to the way uh, a coach builds a good team. Many people try out for the team, but the best, the ones that make the right connections with their teammate, can play well, you know, are strong at doing what they, their partic particular job is, they're the ones you keep on the team and the others you let go. Except there's no coach here, of course. It's just the neurons compete and the ones that do the best job win and the ones that don't do the best job don't do, don't make, don't make the cut. They have to kill themselves. And you then discuss in the book uh, ongoing refinements that happen in the brain now neurons are are emerging and they are setting up the connections what other refinements keep happening at that time as as the brain is being built yeah so at the beginning the neurons have made these connections and they've struggled hard to do this they fought with each other to make the good connections at, at this point if they've survived they will probably be with you for life unless you have a disease or something like that that kills neurons. But at this early stage, they're overconnected. They've tried so hard, they've made too many connections 
And now, although they're not going to die, some of those connections have to be pruned away so that the messages are clear. It's like tuning in on a radio, like with lots of knobs, you're, you're tuning in. You don't want to listen to all the stations at once. You want to listen to some stations. You want to have a clear communication pathway with the, the ones you're supposed to and not with other ones. So there's this refinement process that goes on, and that happens greatly during the early stages, and, but it keeps on going through life, but probably less and less. Um, so the strong tuning happens early on, and more and more fine tuning happens throughout life. So this uh, fine tuning uh, keeps happening. This these refinements uh, keep happening, but before birth, is there any information processing that actually happens in the brain? Oh yes, dramatically. So you can see that when a baby is born. It can move its legs. It can move its mouth. It can, it can, it can. It has behavior. It has baby-specific behavior, and it's appropriate for the baby. So circuits have circuits have been set up in the um, in the baby's brain, and that has happened without the aid of experience out in the real world. Um, as soon as neurons are wiring up in the embryo, they are becoming active, and there are patterns of activity. And these patterns of activity are what starts to refine the connections. A good example is in the retina, where if there are two cells that are close to each other in the retina, they're likely to see the same thing at about the same time. But even before there's vision, there's waves of activity that move across the retina so that neighboring cells get active at the same time. And this helps refine the connections that are developing in the visual system even before there's vision. So that by the time the baby opens up his eyes, it already has a pretty clear image of the world. It's not too fuzzy. Bill, almost all cells in our bodies have a life cycle that is shorter than our own lives. Uh, our skin cells uh, keep dying and new uh, cells keep replacing these dying cells. But neurons are different. Uh, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Neurons, once set in place, remain with us for the entire life and if due to some accident or disease we lose them if they die we don't get new neurons yes this is an unfortunate uh, truth for most mammalian species not so true for fish fish can replace some neurons um, flatworms can replace their whole brains but uh, mice humans um, if you kill a population of neurons, they generally don't get replaced. Maybe in the very, if it happens very early in development, while there's still some neural stem cells around, they would. But once a neuron differentiates, it doesn't divide again. And once you lose your population of neural stem cells, you can't make new neural stem cells. 
So many people have wondered, are there some neural stem cells left in the brain? And there are some, it seems, but just in a few regions. In your nose, there are some that replace the sensory neurons in your nose. And in the hippocampus, this area that's famous for um, forming new memories, there are some, some labs suggest neural stem cells still exist. Some other labs say in humans they don't exist. But for the, your cerebral cortex, there's likely not to be any neural stem cells left. Most injuries of your brain, you know, you don't recover from. Um, and that's because you don't make a new population of, of neurons. And you think about these neurons, they, they are tuned and then refined and then refined and continually refined. They become kind of part of who you are because they've made the connections that make your mach this machine work. If you took away those ones and put in new ones, they would have to make new connections and you'd be a slightly different person. You wouldn't have retained all those memories that you'd refined through this neuron. I don't know if that's the reason why humans don't make new neurons or most mammals don't make new neurons, but most mammals don't make neural neurons. That's the sad fact. Uh, but uh, this uh, research in the field of uh, stem cell treatments, is there any consideration that people who have very bad accidents or diseases that we try to use uh, neural uh, stem cells, uh, even implanted. Uh, I'm not sure this is the right term here, uh, but just to create new no neurons uh, in, 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 in our brain? Yes, absolutely. This is a very active area of current research in a number of labs. Parkinson's disease is a particularly um, good um, example of where people have taken embryonic cells from, say, aborted fetuses and transplanted the neurons that will make dopamine into the right part of the brain. And that can, in some instances, seem to cure Parkinson's disease. And now that we can grow neurons in these culture systems from embryonic stem cells that are grown in culture, we can learn ways to turn those cells into dopaminergic neurons that can be transplanted. Some neurons, like those dopaminergic neurons, although they make lots of connections, um, are, are putting out a, a, a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which is more of a, a neuromodulator. And it, it seems to tone the brain, so keeping synaptic activity at a certain level. And there, perhaps, it doesn't make so much... Um, it isn't so much a case of a forming exactly the right connections, but being able to bathe a, a, a particular population in this neuromodulator that sets the tone. But also in the eye, for example, photoreceptors, people go blind because they lose uh, photoreceptors. And we're learning ways now that we can make photoreceptors, human photoreceptors, from embryonic stem cells and transplant them 
into animals. Mice it's worked with, humans not quite so clear. It's a little bit dangerous because you're putting in embryonic cells, dividing cells, or freshly non-dividing cells into an environment that, that they might go crazy in and make a tumor, for example, instead of the right connections. But yes, this is an exciting area of uh, neural repair. The book, uh, Zero to Birth, How the Human Brain is Built, it presents fascinating research and the way you you step-by-step step describe uh, that how human brain is built, that's, that's fascinating. And the references that are there and various other people's research that you outline, that's fantastic. So will knowing more about how the human brain is built help us to better understand how it works? I think so. I think if you can build uh, a car engine, you can understand how it works better, especially if you have some knowledge that, you know, what this, what this thing you're building is for. And some people say you don't really understand how something works until you can make, make it yourself. So I think it provides some insights but we don't really understand how the human brain works yet. It is fantastically complicated. It processes trillions of bytes of information per second. Um, it, it, the, the wiring specificity and connectivity is so fine scale, so fine tuned that um, we really don't understand like, if I say a word to you, what your brain is doing so that it can understand that word, what at the microcircuit level. Nevertheless, we have some insights on you know how different parts of the brains are built, and there's you know for vision we understand that you have a two-dimensional view of the world, like a camera is taking a picture, and that's preserved somehow in the topography of the brain, like you know, wires from one pixel going to another pixel, neighboring places keeping, uh, mapping to, to neighboring places in the next area. And that gives some, that, that those insights from developmental biology provides some insight into how the brain, how information flows through the brain. But it certainly won't answer the big question of how the brain works all by itself. That has to be done by people studying how information is processed in the mature brain. And uh, when babies are born, uh, their brains, uh, each brain is individual, uh, it's, it's, it's unique, it's different? Yes. Now, I was thinking about this the other day, you know, if you try to build two houses that are the same, you'll never be able to do it exactly the same. You know, some bricks will be different than other bricks. And then you might be able to do a pretty good job with houses, but you won't get two houses the same. But building a brain is the most complicated, the most complicated thing. And it has thousands and thousands of steps in the building. I've tried to, in the book, I've tried to, you know, show the, the, the basic, uh, you know, stages 
Well, within each of those stages, there are hundreds or thousands of steps. And little things can go wrong. And because there's an element of chance in it, um, and because everybody has a different, slightly different genome, uh, slight, you'll never get two brains that are made the same. Even identical twins uh, raised in the same womb don't have identical brains. You know, you can look at them and they're as different as fingerprints are. And the personalities of identical twins are quite similar, but it's still probably the most dif different thing about those identical twins, and that relates to their different brains. Bill, when a baby is born, all the neurons are set uh, and, uh, um, and, and there is a human brain. But babies' skulls are usually smaller than adult skulls. So what keeps uh, uh, improving or changing uh, or further uh, added to this brain? That was a, that's a really interesting question. One, I was um, very interested in following up when I was writing the book. Um, so our brains are composed of two basic types of cells, neurons and glia. There are about a hundred billion neurons in our brain, but there are also about a hundred billion glial cells in our brain. Glial cells are the support cells for the neurons and they do various jobs. They insulate the axons, they provide nutrients to neurons they probably process a little information by themselves, uh, but they have many roles in keeping the brain healthy and happy. Um, many of those glial cells are born after the, the child is born, the baby is born, whereas the neurons are all born before the baby is born. In fact, when a baby is born, more neurons are dying than are being made but glial cells still are on the up. Then neurons are getting bigger as well. You know, they start off as little cells, just fresh from a division, but they have to grow all these processes and things, so they get bigger. So you have lots of um, glial cells that are getting made and neurons are, that are getting bigger. And those are some of the reasons that our brain grows, even though we have all the neurons that we'll ever have when we're first born. Slightly different points, but still relevant to brain uh, and, and the brain science. The research that we are doing now, that how actually brain works, for instance, take two examples, how we retain information, memory, and uh, how we learn new things, new skills. Uh, your colleagues who are doing research uh, on, on these topics, uh, uh, are they making good progress? Are we kind of stuck or where we are? Oh, no, I think we're making excellent progress. Uh, it is very challenging work, though. We first started to understand about learning through very simple learning tasks. Um, one neuron changes that its activity when a stimulus comes in, it's different than it was before. Before it had learned the task, it maybe didn't fire so well. And after it learned the task, it fires well. So what has changed, okay? So we know something about how that happens at the level of a single neuron. But how you recognize your grandmother 
You know, th this is a concept that um, involves hundreds or thousands of neurons, how you understand language, how you understand, you know, not just the changes at, at individual synapses, but how memories are encoded in the brain. In what fashion are they encoded? How is information really encoded in the brain? Um, that is starting to be studied now by neuroscientists who are looking at hundreds or thousands of neurons simultaneously and seeing their changing patterns. And it's a more difficult problem. Professor William Harris, thank you very much for being with me. It has been an absolute pleasure having you on Bridging the Gaps. Thank you very much, Vaseem. It's been a pleasure for me too. And uh, thank you for asking for such good questions. And I hope uh, my answers have been uh, satisfying in some way. I know I haven't perfectly answered your questions, but I, try, I tried my best. I think this was a fascinating discussion, Bill, and I thank you very much and thank you and goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you so much.